0: As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock-solid systems, all in Notion, to support the business as we grew, and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I've felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save
1: 10%. I think after something like five weeks, 20 articles, I already had a few thousand subscribers. I was like, whoa, man, there's something here.
0: Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus, let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. You know, if I'm honest, I spent a long time on the productivity train. I was the guy trying to wake up early and go for a run and come back and journal and then work for a few hours. But over the years, I've started to realize that I felt more like machine than man a lot of the time. And I'm really proud of my ability to do things well and get them done on time. But I was getting tired of being so obsessed with this perfect busyness that I was creating for myself. And thanks in large part to my girlfriend Mallory, I started peeling back some of this emotionless productivity armor and feeling more human again. And today, I'm talking with someone who writes a lot about this tension between being productive and being human. Her name is Anne-Laure LeConf, and she's the creator of Ness Labs. Anne-Laure is studying to get her Master's of Science in Applied Neuroscience at King's College. Every week, she sends a newsletter with practical content at the intersection of neuroscience and entrepreneurship. Her work has been featured in Wired, Forbes, Financial Times, Rolling Stone, and more. And a lot of her writing centers on the topic that she calls mindful productivity, which she discovered the hard way.
1: It comes from a personal experience when I was working at Google and then later on when I worked on my own startups. I went through burnout a few times. And that was a very difficult experience first because I didn't have any of the keys to be able to recognize the signs while that was happening. And also because once I actually identified what the problem was, there were very few resources at the time to help me navigate that challenge that I was going through.
0: On this show, I'll admit that I talk to a lot of writers. But Anlor's story is really unique, and I wanted to bring her on because she's only been writing for the last couple of years, and she's very quickly found a lot of success.
1: In one year, I gained about 20,000 subscribers.
0: Yeah, you heard that right. In one year, she gained 20,000 subscribers. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, whoa, 20,000 subscribers in one year. How did she pull that off?
1: I am very grateful to Twitter in terms of growing my audience. I don't think I would have that many subscribers if it wasn't for Twitter. And I think out of all of the platforms out there, when you compare it to Instagram or any other social media platform, Twitter is still very welcoming to new people. You can start from scratch very easily.
0: So in this episode, we get into the weeds of how Ann Lore quickly grew her Twitter audience. Nest Labs, and how mindfulness has allowed her to be prolific in her writing while getting a graduate degree in applied neuroscience. I'll be sharing some of my favorite articles from Ann Lore's newsletter in our Creative Elements listeners group this week, so click the link in the show notes to join our Facebook group if you haven't already. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Let me know you're listening. And now, let's hear from Ann Lore.
1: Mindful productivity is something I care about a lot because I've noticed that I was not the only one who felt that tension between being very passionate about your job, being very ambitious, wanting to create and work on something interesting, but also at the same time, being able to take care of your mental health. And this is something I've noticed with lots of creatives, creators, I would say. And by creators, I mean really anyone who does the kind of work where... There's nothing and they create something. So that could be really a a developer, a writer, an artist, an illustrator, a designer. All of these, I think, are are creators. And it's very, very common amongst these kind of people to experience burnout at a point or another. And mindful productivity is really an answer to that. It's really about doing your best work while taking care of your mental health.
0: It seems like so many people who are into productivity are also talking about optimization and they're optimizing for just like getting the most done out of every hour of their day. And I love this approach because you also hear about mindfulness and it almost feels like a polar opposite and you're kind of meeting things in the middle. And I don't hear that a lot. Like that kind of sounds intuitive, but what's the hardest part of pairing these two things together?
1: Uh, First, I want to say thank you. And I'm so glad that you're mentioning the other extreme, which uh, I call productivity porn and which is all of this content out there when people tell you, you see successful entrepreneurs telling you that they woke up at 5 a.m. and then they went for a run and they made their own smoothie and then they got all of their inbox cleared by the time it's 8 a.m. And you look at this and if you're a creator or an entrepreneur and you think, Oh man like I'm really not good at this. I'm like I'm not doing all of this. I'm I'm not good at productivity. So taking mindfulness which I agree with you is something that looks like a, the polar opposite of productivity and applying these principles to productivity gives you a much healthier approach to work in general. The hardest part about it to answer your question is really about making sure that you apply these principles consistently. And it's the same for everyone. You, we often have the best intentions. We want to create these mindful routines, but then life happens. And I think 2020 is probably one of the best examples of this where all of your plans don't happen totally. in the same way you have to imagine them. And that creates stress. And it's really hard sometimes to keep on persisting and keeping on using these healthy routines when things don't go according to plan so for me that's the hardest thing because mindful productivity can help you deal with anxiety with stress with procrastination with lots of challenges that we face in our work but these challenges also can make it harder to keep on using those mindful productivity principles so it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing and and that's a big challenge
0: and Laura just mentioned stress and i want to dig into that a little bit more 2020 has been an unnaturally stressful year for all of us, but stress can often get a totally bad rap. And Anne Lohr has written in the past about the difference between the negative experience of distress versus the positive experience of eustress.
1: Stress itself is a completely neutral term. It's not positive. It's not negative. Stress literally just means your body's reaction to an external stressor. And that external stressor can be positive or negative, which will result in you stress or distress, depending on if it's positive or negative. So the misconception that lots of people have about stress, thinking that it's always a bad thing, can be unhelpful in dealing with stress in general. So it's really important to figure out when you're feeling stress, what kind of stress is it? Is it the good kind that's making me perform better? that's giving me this little adrenaline rush that's actually useful? Or is it the bad kind that is leading to anxiety, that is leading to lack of sleep, that is leading to all of these symptoms that we associate with stress, but they're really just symptoms of distress. And what can be helpful too is that instead of just debugging your stress and trying to figure out what kind of stress is it, so how am I going to deal with it, is that you can even be more proactive and seek good stress in your life. Examples of good stress include learning a new skill, which is totally something that gets you out of your comfort zone. So it is stressful, it is, but in a good way. Or moving cities, moving to another city is stressful, but for most people, it is actually good stress because you're going to experience a new culture. You're going to have to learn about a new city. You're going to have to make new friends and that's a good thing in life. So not only you can use that, that distinction between you stress and distress to just understand better your stress and manage it, but you can also start seeking good stress in life.
0: You just used the phrase debugging, which I love because that kind of connotes this idea of I'm noticing something and now I'm very intentionally trying to understand what's happening. But as you've learned more about how the brain works, how much have you improved and begun paying attention to like intuition as opposed to really thinking about what is happening here?
1: I think it's really important in general to remember that tools and frameworks are just tools and frameworks. And sometimes the best tool we have is actually our intuition. So I feel completely comfortable sometimes when I'm navigating a situation where I feel like I don't have a mental model for this. I don't have a framework. I have nothing in my thinking toolbox that is based on my experience that I can just apply to this specific situation. And human intuition can be really wrong sometimes. We make lots of mistakes because we blindly follow our intuition. But sometimes it's just the best tool we have and it's okay to use our intuition. And as much as I am an advocate for thinking about thinking, for metacognition, for always taking that step back to improve your thinking... I think the role of intuition and emotion is also really important and that it can actually be harmful to always rely on our, the rational part of our thinking and not on our emotional thinking, which can be super
0: helpful. I wonder how much intuition we can actually train. You know, is metacognition being better at understanding the intuition that we kind of have innately, or is by thinking about thinking does that actually train our intuition to be more discerning? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I wonder if you have any thoughts.
1: I think as, as often in life, it's a, a little bit of both. Metacognition can help you spot patterns. So you can look at what happened, make space for self-reflection and realize that, oh, wait, every time I did A, it resulted in B. There's something going on here. So I can either, if B was the result I wanted to obtain, I can keep on doing A in the future, but in a more conscious way. Or if B was not the result that I wanted, I can try a different approach. So it's both about understanding our mental models or cognitive biases, and just kind of like looking behind the curtain and trying to understand what's going on there. And it's about then consciously decided to change or reinforce some of these patterns. It's a bit of both.
0: When we come back, anne Laura and I talk about her own system of mindful productivity, and then we dig into how she started building an audience around her work. So stick around, and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full-time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's hel slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. A minute ago, ann Lore and I were talking about the gurus who focus on ultimate productivity through every hour of the day. But ann Lore has a different system, and it boils down to one Post-it note every week.
1: Every week at the beginning of the week, I write down on a Post-it the three top things that I want to focus on for the rest of the week. And these are not necessarily tasks, per se, or goals, per se. They're more like areas of work that I really want to focus on. So it can be, for example, neuroscience, my neuroscience studies, and plus some admin stuff, for example. I, I had weeks where my inbox got so bad that I wrote inbox on this, like <laughs> as a general, a general theme for the week, say inbox. So I, I picked three things, and they're the three general themes for the week, and they really helped me prioritize what I'm going to do. So, for example, here I have podcasts right now. And this conversation we're having is the sixth one in two days because I, all, I put them all this week. I've been saying no to everyone for podcasts for a month now. And I told everyone, if you want to do this, it's going to be this week. And if you're not available this week, well, you'll have to wait for another week, which is completely fine. There's nothing urgent, right? So podcasts is a theme this week, and I'm doing a lot of them, which is great because there's other work that I don't worry about because it's not on that list so yeah, I do that every week and I pick that and it really helps me decide, yes or no, am I going to work on this? Does it fall under the umbrella of one of those three things on my post-it note or not? And it's, it's really good. It really lowers the cognitive load of deciding what I, I can work on this week. I have a problem with the flavor of productivity that's really focused on just the amount of outputs. And that's really about quantity versus quality. I am very prolific and I know that I do write a lot, but I'm also very intentional as to where I put my efforts. And in my case, it's writing and I don't have more hours than anyone else has. I also study neuroscience on the side. I run my company. I do consulting. I have a big family. I have friends. I have a life. So it's not even that I spend all of my day writing I block time in the morning to make it happen, but I decided to make this a priority. And for me, it is so important that when I decide between two things I could be working on, am I going to write or am I going to do that other thing? Writing is always going to be the most important thing. So to me, mindful productivity is also about that. And that's also part of metacognition of instead of mindlessly going through my tasks, I always ask myself, is it the best thing I could be working on right now? Does it really matter to me? Am I going to enjoy this? Is there a better person than me to do this? Should I delegate this? Should I do it later? And just asking myself these questions, it may seem on the surface that I'm wasting time by always asking these questions. But in the long run, I feel like I'm saving so much time because it ends up in me focusing on the right things.
0: I really challenged my own thinking as I was reading about your process around this, this idea of constantly questioning, is this a task that I should be spending my time on right now? And so I was kind of doing an inventory of the tasks that I find myself spending a lot of time on in small, small doses. And I think where I lose a lot of it comes down to just responding to things like Slack, email, text messages. And a lot of that comes with the client work of my freelancer consulting clients or even communities that I help to run. So how do you think about those small tasks that really add up over time? Do you just not worry about it and it happens when it happens? Or do you batch that? Because I know in in your line of work with all the email responses you must get, your own community, that has to happen sometime.
1: I see all of these little tasks as time monsters. They're just like here to, to eat away at your time little by little. I really try to avoid them as much as possible. But I'm also conscious of the fact that it will happen. It will totally happen during the day. I'm not a machine. I get distracted also, as everyone does. So again, it's really about asking myself, what are the important tasks that I need to work on? So for writing, for example, I will always close all of the other tabs on my laptop and I will put my phone in another room. And I know that I can't go and get my phone back until I'm done writing this particular article that I'm working on. And then when it comes to engaging with communities, it's fine. If I do it, I do let myself get distracted when I'm doing emails. That's completely fine. I'm doing emails and then I see a notification on Twitter. I open Twitter. I have a look. That's fine. But for me, answering emails is not something that requires a lot of creative focus and a lot of mental energy. So that's completely okay. And actually, there's research showing that we, roughly on average, all of us have about four hours of Deep work, deep creative work in us per day. And that's it. And you could see this as a bug. I see it as a feature that I work around. And I usually, in the morning, I'm very focused, phone in another room, writing, doing any kind of creative work I'm going to do, brainstorming. When I freelance, that's also when I try to really focus my client work. And in the afternoon, I open my inbox and i okay, let's look at this thing. Let's try and deal with <laughs> what's going on here. And that's fine. Not as much mental energy required. So I think the fact that we do get distracted, the fact that we have all of these communities that we're part on should not necessarily be seen as this horrible thing that we need to just completely kill and destroy, but it just should be managed. And as long as you manage to create a workflow for yourself for those four hours of deep work, have space during the day that is dedicated to them I think you're good
0: I want to talk a little bit about when you struck out on your own and started doing this consulting because I think that will inform a lot of the rest of this conversation what year or so did you start doing this marketing consulting let's start there
1: I started doing this in 2018
0: so really recently And similarly, I know that you really started writing in earnest recently, too. When did you and why did you decide to make writing such a focus for you?
1: In 2018, I decided to go back to school to study neuroscience. And in 2019, as part of my studies, I stumbled upon a concept called the generation effect. What the generation effect says is that we understand and remember concepts better if we create our own version of them. So if you try to understand, remember something, one of the best ways to go about it is to write your own version of whatever concept you're studying. And so I decided to apply this and that was about a year ago, summer 2019. I decided to start writing articles based on what I was studying in uni about neuroscience. And I also decided to create a newsletter as a forcing mechanism to be consistent because I am someone, I wish sometimes that I was the kind of person who didn't care, but I hate disappointing people. Absolutely hate it. Makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. So I created this newsletter where I told people every Thursday, you can expect something from me in your inbox. And for me, that's a great way to have this motivation to not disappoint my readers and to my surprise, the newsletter grew pretty quickly. And yeah, it's become a pretty central part of my work and, and my life. And it only started as a, almost as a studying device.
0: A lot of people listening to the show are probably freelancing or maybe working at a job that uses a lot of their creative energy, and they have a small amount of their time and energy to focus towards their own work. And that's kind of the reality of a freelancer in the beginning. So can you talk about the the nature of the work that you do and how you put that in a space that doesn't drain all of your energy from you?
1: I used to actually feel pretty strained because the work I was doing as part of my personal work around neuroscience was very different from the work I was getting paid for as a consultant. I used to do a lot of marketing consulting because in my past life at Google, that's what I was doing. And this is something I'm, I'm really good at. I'm really good at marketing, at especially brand marketing and community building, etc. So for a while, I had the work that was actually paying the bills, which was the marketing, financing, and consulting, and I had the work that I really enjoyed doing, which was all of the writing about neuroscience and building the Nest Labs community, etc. And I really felt strained. It was really hard for me to, to balance the two. And this is why I've been progressively, and I think I'm now 90% there, trying to shift my freelancing work towards stuff that I actually wanted to work on. And so nowadays, most of the consulting that I do is around mindful productivity for companies that want help in helping their employees, managing burnout, I'm doing workshops, those kind of things. So... I'm not saying that that's what everyone should do, but and and it's not always possible short-term, but long-term, I do deeply believe that trying to align the work you do to pay your bills with the work you do because you love it is one of the best things you can do. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of Ikigai? No. So it's a Japanese term that roughly means way of life. And if you imagine a Venn diagram, With four circles, finding your Ikigai is about finding something to work on and it's something that you're good at, people want to pay you for, that you enjoy, and that the world wants. And I've noticed that it's completely fine if you're missing one of them. Very typical example in nonprofits. It's something the world wants and needs. You're doing something mission-driven you enjoy doing it, you're really good at it, but you're probably not making a lot of money. So that's an example. Conversely, you have people who make a lot of money at their at their job and they're really good at it and they enjoy it, but uh, they work for a petrol company, for example, or something that's you know not necessarily good for the world. So it's usually fine to have one missing out of the four, but if you start missing two, this is where you feel like You're losing meaning and purpose in what you do. And this actually can be a source of burnout. So in my case, I realized that I had one part of what I was working on that was missing quite a few things on the the Ikigai spectrum. I was making money and I was good at it, but I was not enjoying it and I didn't really feel like what I was doing was something the world needed. And so I shifted my focus. And this is something I encourage everyone to do. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up shifting your focus, but again, in the spirit of metacognition, taking the time to take that step back and think about the work you're doing right now and asking yourself as honestly as possible, how many of those four things does the job I do right now? It's, and if, if it's very few of them, do I want to focus on something else?
0: After a quick break, anne Lore talks about avoiding imposter syndrome and how she built her newsletter and Twitter audience
1: Got your happy price,
0: price line. Welcome back to Creative Elements. Ann Lore told us that she began writing publicly as a mechanism for taking advantage of generation effects, a psychological principle that says we remember things better when we create our own version. But for a lot of creatives, it's scary to begin sharing things publicly if we don't feel like we're an expert or authority on a topic. So I asked Ann Lore if she struggled with this type of imposter syndrome.
1: I never really struggled with this, but I also do realize that this is something lots of people struggle with. So I'm so glad you're asking this question. I am a deep believer in learning in public. I think that if everyone was more comfortable learning in public, the world would be a better place. And unfortunately, I don't think it's anyone's fault individually if they don't feel comfortable learning in public because traditional schools, the traditional educational model has been designed in a way that encourages perfectionism. You're supposed to only publish work that you're really proud of. You're supposed to take exams where you have the correct answer. And there's nothing to, in our system to encourage thinking in public, working in public, building in public, failing in public, and learning in public. I think it's, a very, it's very sad, actually. I, I really wish that we all felt more comfortable doing this. So in my case, I actually not, never really struggled with this because I've always made it a point to be very transparent with people. It's everywhere on my website that I, I'm a student. I don't try to pretend I'm more of an expert than I am. And this is the invitation I give to people. I tell them, hey, I'm on this learning journey. Wanna come with me? That's, that's the contract with my readers. And I also love it how people answer to my emails and say, hey, actually, this research paper that you cited has been kind of debunked by this other research study. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much. I actually learned something thanks to the fact that I put my work out there and I openly invited feedback. So no, I didn't struggle with it, but I think lots of people do, and I really hope also to contribute to the conversation around learning in public and maybe help some people to take that step uh, towards working more publicly.
0: Do you have any guidance or advice for people who are able to get through this step? They're saying, okay, I'm going to put myself out there, say I'm learning in public. They get that first email or message or whatever that says, this is why you're wrong. That first message stings a lot. So how do you recommend people sit with that and not immediately shut it down and say, I quit, this sucks?
1: Absolutely. I, I remember the first ones I got, I was like, oh, how could I publish something so wrong? The The advice I would give to to people on a similar journey to mine of learning in public is to embrace that, that discomfort because the more you experience it, the less it stings. And this is also why you'll see on my website. I actually don't just edit the article. I make a note at the top of the article saying, hey, here's the version below that I published and here's what's wrong about it. I love that. But I also want you to, to see you know, the version history. I want you to see how my thinking evolved around this. And I think if you have this intellectual honesty of saying, hey, I was wrong. And thanks to you, I read this. You also invite in your audience, the kind of people who have this, I don't know what the word would be. I want to say the kind of people who have this intellectual kindness mm. where they actually genuinely want to help you learn. And the tone of the emails is, is very nice. Actually they are saying, Hey, thank you so much for putting the time for doing the research, by the way, you you're missing this, or this is wrong. And as a way to thank you, and because I'm grateful for all your work, I am taking the time to send you an email and to tell you that this could be improved in this specific way. And the dynamic is actually very positive when you think about it.
0: And that type of feedback is a generous act on their behalf. Like I, I really strive to be very open and very grateful for feedback, even when I disagree with it. But that's a gift. You know, it's it's up to you to take and use that however you want or discard it if you think that, you know, it doesn't apply. But I think it's always good practice to be as open to feedback as possible. You know, you read about these people who do rejection therapy, where they they go and do things that elicit so much rejection that they become numb to it. And I've I've never gone that far on the end of the spectrum. But this morning, I got an email that was like a rejection for a speaking event, and I didn't flinch and i was like man i'm so glad i'm in this place now where i can just take shots know that most of them are going to miss when i get that rejection i'm just going to move right on it's awesome but it does take a lot of time and i think if if i can add a thought and maybe you have something written around this something i've noticed about my own brain when i do get negative reinforcement we'll call it i have an emotional response and sometimes that emotional response makes me want to take action and say you're wrong ah! but if i just like pause and don't do that and sit with it then I can actually be grateful for that feedback and say thank you for this, even if I disagree with it.
1: (laughs) I think this is part, what you're describing is part of what's called emotional agility, where it's also about being able to sit with your emotions, whether good or, or bad. And I want even to take it a bit beyond that, realizing that there's no really good or bad emotion. Any emotion is just a piece of information from your mind, from your body, telling you, hey, I'm feeling this way right now. Do we want to do something about it? And that's it. And anxiety, stress, anger, they're all opportunities to sit down and think, okay, what's going on here? Why am I feeling this way? Why is this making me feel angry? Why is this making me feel anxious? Yeah, I absolutely love what you, you just said about sometimes you're like, okay, I'm just going to, you know, not react and... That's it. I'm just going to be like, thank you for your feedback. And sometimes it's also good to go a little bit deeper and understand why did I have this first reaction in the first place.
0: To this point, Ann Laura and I have talked a lot about the mindfulness that she brings to her work. But at some point, she made the mindful decision to transform her blog from an accountability mechanism for learning into a platform that serves an audience. And so I asked her when she began to realize that there was an opportunity to build an audience around her work.
1: Pretty early on, I I think after a few weeks, I wrote for a few weeks. So at the time, I gave myself a challenge of writing five articles a week until I reached 100 articles. And I think after something like five weeks, 20 articles, I already had a few thousand subscribers. And I was like, oh, man, there's something here. Interesting. And... I say, okay, I could either just keep on doing what I'm doing and being passive about it or I could be a little bit more proactive. And from that point on, I always made sure that I would post new articles on Twitter on various platforms where I knew knowledge workers and creators were hanging out. So it became a bit more of a proactive process. I've never though really applied any of my true marketing skills to, to this. If, if I was an employee working for Nest Labs and being purely in charge of marketing, I would do so much more. There's so many things that I can do. But as of now, the part of the process I enjoy the most is the research and the writing. And so I do the bare minimum for marketing, but I still do it. And I only started doing the bare minimum a few weeks in.
0: How much of that research is a direct result of your studies versus you branching out and saying, I'm learning about this because I want to be learning about this and writing about it?
1: It has shifted a lot in the the first few months. It was probably eighty percent based on what I was studying at uni, and now I think it's probably twenty percent stuff I study at uni and eighty percent stuff that probably my curiosity about it probably started somewhere stems from something I studied at some point at uni. But I've I've started branching out so much in in different directions that I'm curious about. You know when you fall into your Wikipedia, a Wikipedia black hole of Of just like content and stuff. So that it's that's what's been happening. And and now there's much more I write about that. It's just the result of my own personal curiosity versus stuff that I'm being taught and uni.
0: I can hear my audience just like screaming, Ask her how, ask her how this actually happened. So when you put up this this page, I assume, instead I'm writing about this and people started subscribing in mass, what was the what was the hook that pulled people in, or what are some of the mechanisms that are actually getting people to say, here's my email?
1: I think one very important thing was that I was very transparent in terms of what people would get. I was saying, hey, this is me. I'm a student. I'm not an expert. I'm learning this, and I'm just going to share it with you as I go. And I've heard lots of good feedback about that, where people were say it felt really welcoming versus intimidating I was like oh that's awesome I'm also a student everyone is a student when you think about it I'm curious about this and instead of having this expert talking down on you you feel like you're fellow students learning together so that was one thing that I got really good feedback on and I think help people give me their email address Uh, second thing is the consistency I've had people, it's a bit meta, but I was writing about creativity and productivity while demonstrating how everything I was writing about worked in my case. So you hear and read or, or watch videos from lots of productivity gurus online where you're like, okay, cool, but does it actually work? Do you actually use what you preach? Or are you just trying to sell me an expensive course or, or something? And I think in my case, I was both writing about these topics and demonstrating every day by showing up, by writing five articles a week, by sending a weekly newsletter, by engaging with the community that what I was preaching could actually work. So I think those were the two main things, the, which both when I think about it, they, they both fell under the umbrella of authenticity. I was authentic, both in terms of contract and saying, this is what you can expect. And this is who I am. And I'm not trying to pretend I'm more of an expert than I am. And being authentic in the t- sense of saying, whatever I write about, whatever advice I give you, I'm, as they say at Google, I'm eating my own dog food.
0: I'm getting really into the weeds now. But one point of clarification, was there an expectation of, if I give you my email address, I'm immediately getting some sort of PDF or resource, or was it purely I write every week and this is what you can expect in that writing?
1: I did both. If you go on the main newsletter subscription page, this is where I have a long description of the contract where it's like, this is me, this is where you're going to get, enter your email here. And then at the bottom of every article, I have a very short version of this. My, hey, are you interested in better understanding how your mind works and to make the most of your mind, enter your email here. And by the way, and I put that below the the email box, and by the way, if you do that, I have a few PDFs, uh, eBooks that you're going to to get when you subscribe. So yeah, I did both, and I, but I do think that the, the eBooks can be helpful, but at the same time, so I, I like them as a marketer, but also as a writer, I'm not sure I like them so much because it is just an intuition, feel so like yeah. the kind of people who subscribe because they want a free PDF are not necessarily as engaged mm-hmm. as the people who subscribe because they do want to receive my stuff every week. Exactly. It's more transactional. Less relational.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And, and sorry I'm getting so specific now, but like I said, a lot of people on the show, they've been doing it for 12, 14 years. And it seems like they kind of caught an early wave where there was less competition for attention. They caught some SEO breaks. And your story is so... Powerful to me because beginning to write you know twenty eighteen, even close to twenty nineteen and to have this type of uh, success is is really remarkable. And so I wanted to also ask for people listening that again, they say, okay, I am going to learn in public. I'm going to be authentic to me. I'm going to make it clear what I'm offering. They still need to get that message and their work in front of people, and everyone starts from zero. So what have you learned about building you know your own distribution or getting in front of people? That's, that's the biggest struggle for so many people trying to get started and share their work. What worked for you in terms of getting in front of people?
1: Absolutely. Twitter is my biggest acquisition channel. I would say that something like 30 to 40% of my new readers who subscribe come from Twitter.
0: Do you think they come to your profile, click the link and then subscribe from there? Or do you think it comes from the sharing of your articles from yourself and from others and then they subscribe from having read the first article?
1: It's hard to tell, but just looking at my own behavior on Twitter, I don't usually visit people's profiles. I engage more with content in my feed. So intuitively, and I'm not sure if that's the case or not, I would say that it's more about my articles being shared versus hearing about me, going on my profile, and then clicking the link to subscribe to my newsletter.
0: If people listen to this interview and they go and look at your Twitter right now, they're going to say, oh, she has 30,000 followers. That's a great starting point. But I don't think that was a starting point we started writing. Can you give us a benchmark for what that looked like for you when you began writing?
1: I can't remember exactly how many followers I had, but I think I was at probably six or eight or something like this, below 10. And that had happened in the past year. I have been on Twitter since 2008, on and off. My first tweets—I was 18 at the time, and I, I think I literally have tweets about how I ate an apple. Like it was really <laughs> <the> <laughs> very cringy ones. I haven't deleted any of them, but I, yeah, very bad tweets. I then used it a little bit more when I was at Google, but I couldn't really post anything of what I was thinking myself because you have very strict rules in big corporations as to what you can say or cannot say as an employee. So it was mostly corporate stuff that I was posting. And about a year and a half ago, I started really using Twitter as a platform to learn in public. I started being much more transparent. I started removing some of the filters in terms of drafting tweets. And I started asking questions. When I learned how to code, I was always posting questions about JavaScript and stuff like that. It really worked. People were engaging. I think all of a sudden they were like, oh, this is an actual person and we can engage with her and she's asking questions that I was asking myself, but I didn't feel comfortable asking. So it really helps being more, again, being more authentic really helped in in growing my Twitter account. So for people who are listening, if like me, you want to make the most out of Twitter to grow your audience, have one little piece of advice that I think is very helpful instead of just posting on your own feed just tweeting into the void because at the beginning you don't have any followers go hang out in the replies of people you admire whose work you really like and whose kind of audience is similar to the one you want to build go make friends there just go there post some comments be active in this way and At the beginning, it will be a little bit of a trickle of getting new followers, but then you start noticing this snowball effect because when you start posting on your own profile, these people who follow you are going to retweet you, amplify you to their audience. And I got to a point, it took a a little bit of time, but not that long, where I could confidently post something that I thought was interesting and I knew that at least a fraction of my followers would retweet it to their own followers. And that's the snowball effect that I'm talking about. And I think only on Twitter, because only on Twitter you can retweet stuff. The word comes from Twitter. Only on Twitter you can have the snowball effect.
0: Besides Twitter, what are some other places that you share your work?
1: I also share my work on Hacker News, but... I used to, but I'm not doing it as much as possible because I looked into my analytics recently and I saw the conversion rates of these, the people coming from Hacker News. And I think it was something like 0.03% conversion. So only 0.03% of people finding my articles through Hacker News end up subscribing to my newsletter versus something that is more like three or 4% for any other channel.
0: That's crazy. I have another podcast and for a while we thought, how can we grow a podcast audience? Because audio is just difficult to find. We decided what if we did a quarterly written publication on behalf of the podcast and try to get, it's easier to share written articles. Maybe that will convert into a podcast audience. One of those articles from one of those quarterly publications hit number one on Hacker News, stayed there all day. We got more page views than we've ever gotten before Literally no discernible effect on podcast subscribers. It was like, okay, I guess we're not doing this anymore. Like we, we literally stopped doing the publication after that. That's
1: um, <laughs> crazy. And I'm not surprised at the same time. But this is so bad. I don't know why, but this audience is so hard to convert.
0: So hard, so hard, so fleeting. Well, the last question I want to make, or one of the last questions that I want to ask, even the act of sharing your work on Twitter, sharing your work on Hacker News, some people will get hung up around that because they're afraid of self-promoting. What would you say to them, to people who are, are getting hung up on what they call, and I'll put in air quotes, self-promoting as this sort of bad thing?
1: I don't think they should see it as self-promotion. They should see it as content creation. And it's the same with like the Pareto rule of 80%, 20%. 20% and I think it's actually much lower than this, but a very small fraction of internet users are creating the content that the rest of the population is consuming. So instead of seeing it as self-promotion, think of it as which side of this barrier, this content creation barrier do I want to be on? Do I want to be one of the consumers or do I want to be one of the creators? And if you're a creator, it only becomes something really meaningful if you have people actually consuming the content you create. So just kind of reframing it from self-promotion to content creation can really help, I think.
0: Okay, this is the last question. It almost sounds too simple. Make content, tell people that you're making it, share it on your social media, and yet you've seen incredible results. Is there anything else that you would add to what we've already discussed for people who are saying, that sounds easy, I can do that. Are there any other ingredients that you think they should add into the mix?
1: Yeah, consistency, and that's the real secret ingredient is that I I, I agree with you. Everything I described is very simple. There's nothing magical, secret, complicated to it. I, it's not that I kind of found this way to go about it that no one knows about. But the reality is that when I look around me and I look at creators attempting to do the same thing I'm doing, they quit after one month, after two months, they quit because they're not immediately seeing the results that they're looking for. So the real magical secret ingredient is consistency. And I genuinely think that anyone who consistently puts out good content out there regularly consistently makes the effort of posting it on Twitter, or somewhere else if they're better on another platform, it's Twitter in my case, they will see results similar to me. There are so many people on the internet today. It's really a matter of providing content that's useful to them, that brings them value and finding them, and if you do that consistently, you will also be able to grow an audience.
0: This was a really cozy interview. I can actually feel myself becoming more relaxed anytime I'm talking with somebody who puts such an emphasis on mindfulness. There were a couple things that really stuck out to me about this conversation. And the first is that it all sounds so simple. Three priorities a week on a note card, blocking off a few hours each day to do creative work, sharing your work in a couple of places. It almost feels hard to believe that it can be so simple. But the discipline you need to be consistent with those activities week after week is where the magic happens. The second thing that stood out was Ann Lore's humility in her positioning. She's saying, Hey, I'm a student and I'm here trying to learn just like you. It reminded me of my conversation with the budget nista, Tiffany Alice, when she said she didn't want to be your financial guru, she wanted to be your financial girlfriend. More and more, I'm convinced that humility and being very human is a real advantage as a creator. If you want to learn more about Ann Lore's work, you can visit nestlabs.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Thanks to Ann Lore for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making our artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Podhunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.